Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good morning. It is always a joy and a priest's heart to see a packed church, so much so we got the choir loft seats all filled up up there. Hello, choir loft people. They paid extra for those seats, I think. I, I don't know. Well, friends, whether you're ready or not, here we are, first Sunday of Lent. It's hard to believe, first Sunday of Lent. Lent is the church's annual retreat. This is uh, when I was in seminary. He's now Bishop Woost, but Father Woost at the time, he would always, Lent is his favorite season, and he would always say, we are now entering into the church's annual retreat. And it's a it's a blessed time. It's a, it's a sacred time. It's a time of returning back to the basics, back to the fundamentals of the Christian life, stripping some things away, some of the things that have kind of, we all kind of get fat and lazy basically throughout the rest of the year and the church is like, let's just kind of return back to the basics, right? A little bit more prayer, more fasting, more almsgiving, all of those things. And that's true and that's good and it's necessary for us. It's necessary for us. It's necessary, but even more than just that, back to the basics, in many ways what Lent is, if I could put it this way, Lent is an invitation, a deep dive into the very heart of the story. It's an invitation to be reminded of the story, of, of, of everything, right? It's the story that's changed the world. It's the only story... It's the only story that gives hope, right? I'm talking about salvation history, right? I'm talking about the, the grand cosmic story that God has been writing since he flashed out the Big Bang and set everything in motion and has been winding his way in relationship to creation. That whole story that culminates from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that's the story. And the church throughout the days of Lent, throughout the Sundays of Lent in particular, is recapitulating that story, is telling the story over again to us. And especially for those of you who are going to become Catholic this year at the Easter Vigil, um, which is going to be, I think, about nine hours long. I'm not sure, but um, there's going to be 17 baptisms. I mean, there's just no way. We're going to be here till midnight, I think. Anyway, but the Easter Vigil readings, there's nine readings, and those readings all of those readings, they're recapitulating the highlights, the, the mountain peak moments of God's relationship with humanity and salvation history. And the point is this, that if we're unclear about the whole story, we're not going to understand what these days are about. We're not going to understand what this journey is about. I was thinking about, there's uh, one of my favorite authors as of late is this woman named Fleming Rutledge. She's a contemporary writer. She's a, get this, she's an Anglican woman priestess. And she has become, I know, no one's more surprised than me, one of my favorite writers right now, okay? It's astounding. She writes like a church father. Like, it's incredible, her writing. She wrote a book called, uh, it's On the Crucifixion of Our Lord. It's this massive tome, and it, it changed my life. It changed my vision of, of what happened on that Friday we call good. Anyway, in that book, she wrote something that I find very apropos for where we are today on this first Sunday of Lent. She said this, in the final analysis... Theological speculation can only take us so far. We need to know the story. Like reflecting on different aspects of the mystery of Christ, reflecting on different aspects of theology is fine and helpful and good. But if, if we don't have the larger framework of the story, none of it, there's no scaffolding for these things to hold on to. So friends, we need to know the story. 
We need to know this story. In the short gospel that Deacon just proclaimed from Mark, it's a very short gospel. In that short gospel, Jesus is making this unbelievable claim. He's gone out into the wilderness. He returns, and he says something that, like, to a first century Jew, hearing Jesus say, it would have, it, like, it would have knocked their, I would have said socks. It would have knocked their yarmulkes off. They didn't wear socks. So, I guess sandals? I don't know. Would have knocked their yarmulkes off? Maybe that's offensive. I don't know. They would have been blown away, is my point, by what he's saying to them, okay? He says, now is the time of fulfillment. Now is the time of fulfillment. We hear that, and in many ways, for us contemporary Christians, Americans, 2024, it just like goes over our head. But not them. Not Jesus' contemporaries. They would have been blown away by that. They would have been blown away. Because, here's the question. The fulfillment of what? What is being fulfilled? Right? What is being fulfilled? What is being brought to completion? What is Jesus talking about? Nothing other than God's loving plan of goodness that's been working its way, winding its way through millennia of suffering and promises and covenants and marriages and kingdoms and exiles. It's, it's being fulfilled, he says, now and in my person. Again, if we don't know the story, if we don't know the story, none of that makes sense. None of that's good news if we don't know the story. None of this means anything to us. So again, the Church for Lent is inviting us to see, to contemplate, to be resituated within the drama that we are a part of. It's not something that we merely reflect on. It's something we are part of. So let me just sketch this out, how this is going to work over the next few weeks. So for this first Sunday of Lent, this Sunday, we hear about Noah and his family and the covenant that God makes with him in creation. Then next Sunday, we'll encounter Abraham and the near sacrifice of Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. Then we come to the third Sunday of Lent, and we'll hear about Moses and the giving of the law at Sinai at the conclusion of the Exodus. Then the fourth Sunday, we'll encounter King David. Then the fifth Sunday, we'll hear about God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, speaking about the coming of the new covenant. And that word right there, covenant, that word is the key that unlocks the whole thing. It's the lens through which we need to understand this whole story. We'll hear that. We heard that word in that first reading with Noah. We'll hear it. We hear it in every single Mass in the institution narrative, and we'll hear it as the crescendo of the Lenten journey on Holy Thursday, where we hear Jesus speak over bread and wine, and he says, This is the new covenant in my blood. This word covenant is the word berit in Hebrew. It's a very ancient concept. It's the whole idea behind it is that it, a covenant establishes, it's a sacred oath that extends bonds of kinship. It makes strangers into family. Another way to think about covenant, when you hear the word covenant, think marriage. It bonds people together. And it's the key for understanding the story because our story, it proceeds through a series of covenants in the Old Testament and covenant mediators that God calls to be the ones through whom he establishes these covenants. Now, covenant, it's, it's hard for us to understand it because it's not like a contemporary word that we use all the time, and we easily think it's synonymous with contract. Covenants are not the same things as contracts. A contract is an exchange of property, right? It says, this is yours and that is mine. The example I always think of is, like, I have a contract with Verizon Wireless, right? I give them money, and they give me, ideally, sometimes, cell phone service, right? 
when it works out. You're not holding up your end of the contract, right? This is yours and that is mine. A covenant, on the other hand, is an exchange of persons, not property. And the form of covenant is I am yours and you are mine. It's what every married person says when they stand in front of the altar on their wedding day as they establish the marriage covenant between them. I am yours and you are mine. And covenant is how God has been trying to glue humanity and divinity back together. It's how he's been trying to reestablish the marriage, reestablish the union. But that itself begs a question, right? What happened in our past which would necessitate the union to be restored? Like, what happened? Why, why did it break down? Why does it have to be fixed? Well, Genesis 3 is what happened. Genesis 3 is what happened. And if we don't understand Genesis 3, we're not going to understand the whole story because it's the, it's the conflict within the drama. It's the conflict. Like, if you never knew the story of the Titanic, and you didn't know about the iceberg, you'd be very confused if you missed that scene. Genesis 3 is the iceberg. It's the iceberg. And what we understand when we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we understand that we were made for Eden. If you ever wonder why you're so dissatisfied with how things are, with what's happening in the world, with what's happening in your life, it's not because you're, you're needy and immature. No, it's, there's a, there's a, the heart knows things that our heads don't know. Our hearts know we were made for a perfection that we've lost that we're exiled royalty, that we were made for the palace and yet we live in the slums is what this fallen world is. Eden was the environment of perfect love and perfect bliss and perfect beauty where humanity was made to stand in this posture of receptivity before the gushing heart of the Father, giving everything, pouring everything into us. And yet, there was another actor on the stage, an enemy, the enemy, who enters the story a fallen angel, Lucifer, who, whose name means the light bearer. He, we understand that he goes to war against us, motivated out of envy. The scripture says it was out of envy that the enemy attacked humanity. Envy for what? Envy of our exalted end. Envious of the destiny that God had in mind for us. That we, these mere creatures of earth and dust, that these earthly creatures would be exalted to a place higher than the angels, brought into union with God and the Trinity, and that in the fullness of time, God would join his nature to our nature. And Lucifer saw this and said, I will not serve this plan. Non serviam. I will not serve this plan. So he goes to war, not against God, because he knows he can't win against God. He goes to war against the creature that God loves the most, which is us. And so he enters into the garden, He enters into the garden and he approaches our first parents with that question. It's not an invitation to atheism. It's just an invitation to doubt the goodness of God. He plants a seed of doubt in their mind which gives birth to a lie that they bit into and believed wholeheartedly that we have inherited. And the lie is this, that God, like you think you know who he is. You think he's trustworthy. You think he's good. He's not who you think he is. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to flourish. He doesn't want you to have this full and beautiful life. And so we've become convinced, all of us, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, the whole human race, we've become convinced that somehow our flourishing, our best life, is best accomplished by keeping God slightly at bay. 
that those things are accomplished and accessed independently of God. And, with, and through that, we've sold ourselves into slavery to powers against which we were helpless. But God acted to rescue and to restore his sons and daughters, to, to restore the dignity of his bride and to win her heart back, to win our heart back. He wanted to restore this marriage. And so he launches this rescue mission which we see in the beginning in the first reading with the calling of Noah and his family to build an ark. A microcosm. That's what the ark is. It's a microcosm of God's good order. It's a floating Eden. It's a floating Eden. And God intended for them to to move in harmony with his mind and his heart. And God establishes a covenant with Noah and with his family. Right? That's the first reading we have. But we're going to notice a theme here. Does Noah keep the covenant, yes or no? Say it again. No. He doesn't keep the covenant. The covenant breaks down. So does God just wipe his hands of us and walk away? No, no. He does not abandon us to the domain of death, but he comes again. He calls again, and this time he calls Abram, a childless elderly man who's that's a brutal name, right? When your, your name means father of many and you and your wife have no kids. That's brutal. Anyway, he calls Abram and he calls his wife Sarai. And he says, you will conceive a son and from your heir, from your issue, will come forth universal blessing to all of mankind. And that God promises Abraham that he will make his name great. He tells him that he will give him land. And then after Isaac is born in their old age, 33 years later, Isaac, the only begotten son of his father, at 33 years, Abraham calls, God calls Abraham again and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only begotten, to a mountain I will point out for you. I want you to there sacrifice him for me. And so Isaac, carrying the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain on his own back, does that sound familiar, Catholics? Yes, good, okay. Isaac, the only begotten son, carrying the wood of the sacrifice, says to his father, Here is the wood, here is the fire, here is the knife, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, don't ask stupid questions, kid. No, no, he says, he says God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And as the knife is coming down upon Isaac, who laid himself down on the altar, the angel stops him. And there caught in the thicket is a ram, a male lamb with its head surrounded by thorns. And that lamb becomes the sacrifice. A male lamb with its head surrounded by thorns. Does that sound familiar? Yes. That lamb sacrifice becomes the prototype for what's coming over the next many centuries because Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. How appropriate. Israel himself has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. The youngest of these sons is Joseph. Joseph who gets sold into slavery to Egypt and he rises to a place of prominence in the Egyptian court. Famine strikes the land and all the sons of Israel come down to Egypt to beg for bread. There's this whole beautiful, amazing family reunion. Joseph forgives his brothers. I wouldn't have been so forgiving. But Joseph forgives his brothers for selling him into slavery. All of them stay in Egypt and they settle there. And they begin to multiply. And then Exodus, we hear in Exodus, a new pharaoh, a new king comes to power who knew nothing of Joseph or his brothers. And seeing how multiplied, how numerous they were, he enslaves them, thinking they could join with our enemies if there is an army coming against us. For 430 years, they are enslaved to Pharaoh. God, seeing their plight, 
God, seeing their plight, sends to them another covenant mediator, a new covenant mediator, Moses this time. Moses. Moses enters into Egypt. The whole plagues break out. The Passover lamb. We know the story. Charlton Heston, you know, Ten Commandments, you with me? Right? Let my people go. Right? Anyway. This inaugurates the Exodus. This is the defining event. This is the fulcrum, the pivot point of the Old Testament. The Exodus was the defining event for Israel. God acting on our behalf, liberating us from powers we were helpless against. And this event becomes the icon of what's coming. What's coming? Because God will send to his people a new Moses, who is the Christ, who will lead his people out of a new Exodus, saving them from an enemy far worse than Pharaoh, delivering them to a promised land far more glorious than the one flowing with milk and honey, bringing us home. So to the, at the base of Mount Sinai, God establishes another covenant, giving them the tablets of the law. And they had this covenant for like three minutes, it feels like. Because about three minutes into this, they're making a golden calf and worshiping it as if it's their God. And God must be shaking his head, just going, I try with you people. Then centuries go by. Israel is suffering throughout all of this. And then God calls another. He calls another. David, the least and unlikeliest sons of Jesse, to be king over his people. This is what we'll hear on the fourth Sunday of Lent. God establishes this covenant with David, and he promised David this absurd promise, this royal dynasty. He says, your son shall sit upon your throne forever. Forever is the promise. Do you know when we hear that promise made good? On March 25th, when we celebrate the Solemnity of the Annunciation, when Gabriel comes to Mary and says to her, I will give him the throne of David his father, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So another covenant is given, established through David. But David himself has his own fall. Is the covenant kept through David, yes or no? No. Breaks down. So the prophets of Israel, like Jeremiah, they begin to dream about and long for the day when a new and definitive covenant would be given, this unbreakable bond that we couldn't screw up, this longing for covenant fulfillment. And we'll hear this longing on the fifth Sunday of Lent. We'll hear Jeremiah, we'll hear Jeremiah say this, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers the day that I took them by the hand to lead them forth from the land of Egypt, for they broke my covenant. Friends, I know I'm throwing a lot at you this morning. You still with me? Yes? Okay, good. This is the story, though. And if we don't know this story, if we don't understand how it's progressed through these covenants as God's entered into relationship, acting our behalf, we're not going to understand what culminates in Holy Week. That's the crescendo. That's the crescendo. This whole drama, the fulfillment in Christ, is the fulfillment of a grand story. It's a rescue story. The greatest rescue story with the gravest evil and the greatest peril. And the greatest reward, and it's a love story of the highest drama with the most incredible lover, the wildest of all lovers, who came to rescue the heart of his bride, so bereft, so isolated, so broken. This is the story where God himself is the actor. He is the protagonist. He's the one who's doing something for us. What is he doing for us? He's saving us, rescuing us, restoring us. 
Like this is, like this fulfillment that Jesus says, this fulfillment, it is the gospel. That's what the gospel is, the unbelievable, like too good to be true news that he has done something about our foe, about the one who took us captive. He's done something about sin and death. You can't do anything about death. I can't do anything about death. But he's done something to death. He's drained it of its power. He's defanged it. That while death still comes for us, death can't hold us. Before Christ, there was eternal death. And Jesus has transformed death from being a period at the end of every human life into a comma, this pause that now we have eternal life accessible to us. He's done something for us. He's done something for our hearts. This, this infinite longing we have for the endless ocean of beauty and goodness and friendship and love. Like, we don't want a little bit of these things. We want all of it for it to, ever, to never cease. He says, I am the fulfillment of that. That's who he is Endless glory, endless bliss. He's come to feed our deepest hunger. He's come to, to slake our deepest of thirst. That's who he is. He's come to save the lost sheep. He's come to call back the straying and to welcome the prodigals home. He's done this. He's done this. He's come for his bride. And friends, he's come for you. This is so personal. It's not for y'all. It's for you. The whole story is for you. This is the story, and friends, this is the drama. This is real. This is real. And we are here because for 2,000 years, Christians have bled and died to hand on this story through time so that you and I could hear this story. We are the beneficiaries of their blood, the blood of martyrs, the blood of heroes, the blood of men and the blood of women, the blood of children, who saw in Jesus, who saw in that sacrifice the fulfillment of the, everything in their hearts that they were longing for. And they wanted to give it to us so that we could have hope. So that when we come to Easter and we sing and cry out, Alleluia, that we would know what we're singing. That we would know why we're praising God. It's because for reasons Beyond our imagination, you matter to him. The one hanging on the cross, you matter to him. Amen.